0: it's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue and that's when i really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds investing is about innovation
1: the belief is if there's a new piece of information that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever but that's not how people change their minds
0: Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world uncovering their secrets to success. Michael Lucas is CEO of TrueMark Investments, owner of TrueShares, an ETF provider that embodies active management. Believing a concentrated portfolio that holds best of breed names is essential to capturing alpha. As they put it on their website, long-term investing in companies with a competitive edge is paramount to market outperformance. We discuss this investment philosophy and dig into the TrueShares process to understand how they consistently identify these best-of-breed names. Michael also evaluates the bifurcation of the tech sector, having recently noticed a divergence between B2B and B2C company performance. And finally, we learn more about the TrueShares Technology, AI and Deep Learning ETF, a prime example of the firm's commitment to investing in the new economy. And remember, to receive a roundup of Opto's best content every day, subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the link in the episode description. Enjoy. Welcome, Michael. It's great to have you on the show.
1: So how are things? Uh, Things aren't too bad, you know, all things considered. Uh, You know, it's uh, November. We're getting into the holiday season here in the US and the markets have seemed to, they're taking a breather uh, to the positive. Elections, midterm elections are almost by us. So, um, I
0: think things could be worse, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and whereabouts are you talking to us from? I am talking to you from San Francisco today. Great. All right. Uh, so we're based here in London, uh, in the city of London, actually, by Liverpool Street Station, if you know it. But yeah, pretty different surroundings.
1: Yeah. Well, sometimes
0: the same weather, though. <laughs> so. Yeah. Do you know what? It's actually not been too bad lately here. For November, it's actually been relatively sunny, so no complaints there.
1: Yeah, global warming or
0: climate shift. Or right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, got to take these sort of silver linings where you can, I suppose. Um, <laughs> um, great. All right, well, let's start with one of the subjects of today's interview and then we'll circle back and, and cover True Mark and your investment philosophy and process. But before we do, explain to us the bifurcation of the tech sector you're seeing at the moment. What's happening there? You know, I
1: think we're, we're pretty clear in the idea that you know, B2C and B2B, business to business, business to consumer, are starting to decouple. And for a variety of reasons, right? But I I think uh, this latest earnings season has really backed up that thesis. And, you know, I I don't think it's going to change very much moving forward. But if you see a lot of the the consumer-directed companies in tech, and quite frankly, a lot of them are fang stocks, right? But uh, when you see the damage that's occurred with Meta, when you see some of the weakness in you know, Microsoft and you saw some some of the, the real consumer companies like a Snap or things like that show tremendous weakness, uh, I think that throws up some red flags and you have to analyze what in the tech sector is working and what isn't. And so for a variety of reasons, which we can get into, certainly, the B2C aspect of tech seems to be, um, let's just say growth seems to be lagging or waning, uh, where the B2B, which really is primarily uh, cloud applications, uh, seems to be thriving. And to to the untrained eye, it may not be as obvious, but when you peel back the layers of the onion, so to speak, and you look at pockets of spending and strength, even within the the mega caps and where their capex, right, or where their their spending is their investments going. Uh, it's heading towards the periphery and the core of utilization of you know, cloud apps. So we think that there's there's obviously still plenty of runway in some of the secular growth companies that are SaaS based. And certainly I think, you know, regardless of the the most recent little pop here in Tech which was you know, I think primarily driven by macro news right maybe the possibility that inflation might be slowing in the us that's all good and well, but it takes time it takes time to turn the inflation battleship and and just because the numbers are coming out a little cooler right now doesn't mean they're going to lower rates all of a sudden and you know, really what a lot of the um, you know the, the struggle with with tech companies is driven by interest rates and inflation and what goods cost, even if it levels out here, it's still very expensive for consumers. And so I think that can't be discounted. But yeah, to circle back to the original point, we do see some sort of a bifurcation here
0: Yeah, fascinating. And as you say, we'll get onto it in more detail further on. But I certainly haven't heard anyone else really talk about that divergence. Um, so I'm keen to dig into it. But before we do, let's cover TrueMark. Uh, let's cover your philosophy and your investment process as well. I read online that TrueMark invests in the new economy. And that's how you kind of define your investment universe, I suppose. So, But how do you characterize that universe? How would you describe it to someone that wasn't aware of it uh, before this interview? Yeah, I
1: think the I think the commonly accepted term is thematic. You know, we, we see, we've we seen the onset of thematic ETFs uh, for the last handful of years. And we only use that for lack of a better term, right? I mean, I think that the way we look at it is we're, we're looking at nascent technologies, nascent tech sectors, that you know, whether or not the thematic is open for debate, uh, certainly they can be disruptive. You know, but one of the sayings we always use in our shop here is that you can stand out in the middle of traffic and disrupt traffic doesn't make it a good business model. Uh, So, you know, the idea that disruptive is a valid reason to invest is also, I think, uh, something we try to to shy away from here. Mm. So, when you look at our investment philosophy, it really is about finding uh, segments that are growing at a quick pace, finding segments that are providing solutions to pain points in a certain sector or industry and understanding that uh, we are active managers. Uh, Generally speaking, we use fundamental portfolio construction, which means all of our equity funds, all of our equity ETFs Generally pursue concentrated portfolios, which is different than most most registered or what we'll call uh, publicly available products out there. So, by using a concentrated portfolio, that really magnifies your active management. And you know, just anecdotally, you know, years ago I worked on a on a fund. It was a hedge fund, in fact, with a fellow named Burton Malkiel. Um, you know. Author of Random Walk Down Wall Street, the, the father of indexing, right? And efficient markets. And you know, we had a chance to really chit chat about uh, the idea of active investing and what it means. And, you know, Bert's philosophy, I think was a little bit misconstrued by people sometimes, but obviously he believed in efficient markets. And one of the reasons he advocated against active investing and in, in favor of indexing what's the cost? And so it was the idea that you're paying for something that is highly unlikely to beat the overall market if you're investing in efficient markets. Now that's true, I think, at its core, if you're a diversified investor. So if you're going to try to beat the market as an active investor, you can't own the market. I mean, that's really where you fall down. So for us, the idea of concentrated portfolios, high conviction portfolios, with fundamental research backing up those, those equity choices can really make a difference when you're looking at inefficient asset classes. And so when we talk about that thematic or that disruptive, what we're really saying is they're young and inefficient. So when you look at large cap US equities, you're talking about efficient markets. When you look at Sometimes small and mid cap, or, or any kind of equity in a sector that is nascent, sector that is still evolving, then you'll have inefficiencies. So, those inefficiencies are fertile ground for active management. Further, when you, you know, as I just explained, when you pursue active management, you really need to think about the idea of high conviction and concentration. Because when you look at returns, if you look at, um, take the last 10 years, right, even the last 12 years, and look at what the S&P P's done, or look at what NASDAQ's done and then think about what it would look like if you took the fang stocks out right if you took the mm. fang stocks out that return profile of either of those indices you've got a drastically different return because the fang stocks themselves generated so much of that that um, alpha uh that attribution mm. really went to the fang stocks it makes the case it makes you wonder what your return profile would have looked like if you just bought fang and not the broader market, it would have been better. Of course, that's in a perfect world. You had to obviously identify Fang and, and all that good stuff. But you know, it it gives you statistical support to the idea that if you're going to be an active investor, if you're going to be in asset classes that have inefficiencies, then you really need to think about not only fundamentally analyzing your investment choices, but utilizing high conviction and existing in in a relatively speaking concentrated portfolio. And as we'll get into, that even has, um, in our minds, more relevance in the tech marketplace than anywhere.
0: Mm, got it.
1: Um, so you've mentioned that
0: these nascent industries or economic segments have inefficiencies, but perhaps there are characteristics investors can actually learn to spot that are relatively consistent amongst these nascent asset classes Are their particular tropes or characteristics that you could highlight.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, particularly when we look at tech, you know, we try to start to follow companies before they even go public. And that's really a qualitative assessment, right? Where you're looking at, um, you know, customer adoption, when you're looking at, you know, different uh, employee movements, et cetera. So that's more of the professional outlook, right? But let's talk about when it goes public. What you're looking at, You know, and I, we've been, there are a handful of things in the investment world we've been trained to look at, right? One is we've been trained to look at earnings, earnings per share, right? That's a big one. Stock comes out with earnings, it beats, it misses the consensus earnings estimate. And then we all sit here in Main Street and sometimes a stock beats an earnings estimate and it goes down. And everyone sits there shaking their head and saying, "Why, why would it go down? Well, you know, the devil's in the detail. And so what we look at it, what we think is a really good place to start is look at free cash flow, right? So look at how much cash flow a company is generating because that top line number, you know, and certainly, you know, some, some, uh, some ancillary numbers that are connected to that. There are a lot of factors that go into that. So if a company is generating high cash flow, high free cash flow, and moving towards you know, that earnings number reducing because of CapEx or meaning they're investing in their business, or if a company is actually generating enough cash flow to cover their operations, but you know, there are other factors that reduce that EPS, then you've got a company that's being adopted. Right? So what happens is if you look at... Uh, Customer adoptions, right? If you look at how those what their technology is being adopted, or rate at which it's being adopted, if you look at how much free cash flow they're generating, if you look at their margins, those things are going to tell you whether or not a company is on a secular growth path. And you know, for for those that are listening today that don't understand secular growth, that basically means that company is. You know, entering a growth phase due to its position in the marketplace, its uh, competitive advantage, uh, something that's you know going to help it uh, shirk, you know, macro factors. And so, if you look at those types of those types of uh, characteristics, you'll be able to identify companies that are being uh, adopted in their space that are gaining customer base. And the thing about, especially technology, and and obviously many other services, when it's adopted by a company in the B2B sense, an ecosystem builds up around it. So there's something called a switching cost. So once companies on large scale adopt a technology or adopt some sort of service from another company, it usually gives you a little bit of runway because if they become dissatisfied with that service, the cost to unwind that choice. Is prohibitive, and so again, I think uh, cash flow generation, free cash flow, uh, certainly customer adoption and growth in, in certain product areas. I think you know that combined with sort of the idea of is there a wide moat? You know, is it uh, an industry that has a pain point which this company is solving? Uh, those are all things to look at and and really combine into at least an initial opinion as to what not a stock is worth looking into.
0: Mm, interesting. Well, you mentioned sort of secular growth stories there. If we are looking at secular growth, over what time horizon do you think this new economy and these emerging sort of nascent asset classes are likely to manifest? And I imagine each theme, nascent asset class is different, but is there is there a general rule? Are these all sort of multi-decade time horizons? Perhaps you can give us an indication.
1: Well, it's, it depends on the asset class, right? I don't think there's a general rule, but I do think that, you know, the, I think once, most investors realize which growth story is, is going to stick, or they're late to the game. <laughs> right? it's, it's, the, <laughs> yeah. it's the old idea that the, uh, if you think you figured it out, it's likely someone else figured it out before you. So you know, I think it depends on the asset class. When you look at um, accelerants or catalysts, uh, certainly when you look at AI and deep learning, you know, we had this discussion a lot during the, the pandemic and the lockdowns because that work from home trade became so popular uh, you know the idea that all of a sudden these were relevant technologies because people were working from home was you know that was a bit of a, a bit of a misdirection play right because these were relevant technologies long before lockdown otherwise they wouldn't have existed the way they did and so it's it's the idea that uh, there are th- there are themes or currents within a sector or segment And then all of a sudden there's a catalyst and it brings it to the forefront. So when you see secular growth, there are those that are obvious and there are those that are less obvious. And so the work from home trade, as an example, had a lot of obvious ones. Like Zoom went meteoric, right? Because everybody was using Zoom during the lockdown. And then Zoom Mm. stopped going meteoric when the lockdown ended. And people say, well, that's because everybody went back to work. But it's not really. It's because you have other mediums out there. Uh, Microsoft Teams, for example, right? Which mm. anybody with a with a Windows-operated computer is more likely to use. It's easier than Zoom. So At least in my opinion. So, yeah. you know, there are just a lot of different things. So it's, yeah, they solved the pain point at the time, but then when we look at the the ideas behind that, when you talk about the fact that you know, there's a cloud migration happening, it started long before you know, the the pandemic and the lockdown and moved right on through the pandemic and kept going. So when you talk, you know, globalization as an economic theory may be hitting, I think, a rough spot, but global digitalization is still very much on the move. And so when you talk about cloud migration, the fact that maybe we're, I don't know, at best, Fifteen to twenty percent into it, then you talk about secular growth stories that have run away for years, maybe decades. And so it's um, you know you, when you look at cyber and things like that, you're you know you're looking at things that are, are going to be officially intertwined with everything we do in life as this cloud migration, as this global digitalization continues. So you know again, it varies by asset class.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I want to get into a few specific themes later on. Um, but before we do, I mean, a lot of people will be familiar with the thematic approach because of high-profile stock pickers like Cathy at Arc, for example. I wondered whether you could kind of put your finger on what TrueMark are doing differently or kind of what your edge is versus those other thematic stock pickers out there. Yeah,
1: we're picking stocks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. i sorry. I say that. I say that facetiously, obviously. But, um, you know, look, it, it's... I'm going to try and say this eloquently, which I often fail at, but um, you know, like the reality is if you have a discipline, if you have a certain segment or sector or area of the market that you're really good at, wonderful, but when you broaden out and you start to try and become good at lots of other segments in the market, then the odds are stacked against you, Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Because you're not going to be good at every sector or segment of the market, and people choose unwisely sometimes when they invest. I mean, that's the nature of the beast. So, you know, Kathy had some great success, and, and a lot of that was, I think, um, you know, wrapped around Tesla. Mm-hmm. You know, as her initial call, she pounded the table on that for years, and, and rightly so. Uh, but you know, where do you factor in the Bitcoin 500,000 comments, right? <laughs> you know, like it's like, what, it's like, wait a minute, you know, where, where are we going with this? And is it, is it really just about disruptive technologies? Or like what's the, you know, or is it just about just standing on the mountaintop and screaming? Mm. So, um, you know, for us, we try to stay within our lane. Okay. And, and we have lots of different funds. Uh, you know, we've got our AI and deep learning fund. Of course we have. A really good low volatility, you know, dividend income fund. Uh, we've got, um, you know, re- uh, a renewable energy fund, uh, in registration. So you know, we, we go for different asset classes, but we try to get PMs. We try and hire sub advisors to manage those funds that are very industry specific and in many cases have practical. Experience in those industries, and you know, we're not big on the idea that we have a team of general analysts or um, you know teams that are assigned to certain areas. We are big on using you know advisors that invest solely in energy-related projects to do our renewable energy infrastructure fund. Right? We think that's smart. We are big on using you know engineers that have been in the industries to do our AI and deep learning fund, right? Uh, So we try to stay very specific to what we're doing. Each fund has its own mandate. Uh, We try to stay within that. We try to stay concentrated. And we try to, again, pursue high conviction, which I, I don't think anybody would mistake many of the thematic products out there as ones having high conviction, particularly when you go through the portfolios. Because you go through some of these portfolios and, you know, I think this has been on the SEC's radar for a few years now. But you go through some of these portfolios and you look at it and you say, how the heck did they get to name this product what they did when you look at the portfolio? Yeah. You know, so for us, it's really staying disciplined and strict with our mandate, uh, staying within that lane uh, and being concentrated. Because this goes back to the idea of concentration versus diversification. mm Diversification to the average investor has always been schooled as a positive. And in many cases, it is a positive. It depends on what your expectations are for your portfolio. But if you're trying to produce alpha, if you're trying to beat the market, which is what an active manager generally tries to do, then diversification can hurt you because you're bound to be wrong. So much of your alpha in a portfolio, like we talked about with Fang, is going to come from a handful of names. The more concentrated you are in that handful of names, the better you're going to do. The more losers you have in your portfolio, because a, a large portfolio will have winners and losers. Any portfolio has winners and losers. But the more losers you have in that portfolio, the more drag you have on performance. So it just can't be underrated, the idea of Having a concentrated portfolio, having fewer stocks, I don't know if you're going to get this or not, but people in my generation get it, right? So I used to call it the Jerry Maguire theory Mm -hmm. uh, after the Tom Cruise movie, right? Yeah. Where his big epiphany was fewer clients, higher quality, right? Mm -hmm. Higher quality service, fewer clients, less money. So the idea of a concentrated portfolio is not dissimilar to that. It's the idea of fewer stocks, higher quality, and you can actually keep track of them all. And you can actually dig in them deeper and understand them. You can't do that when you have 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 names. Uh, that's basically an index fund, right? You own, you own the market at that point. So what we do differently is really rooted in the idea of not only being uh, very focused on a sector and utilizing you know, sub-advisors or portfolio managers, that have real life experience in those sectors and real investment acumen in those sectors, and then utilizing them to run a highly convicted, concentrated, fundamental portfolio.
0: Yeah, great. I wanted to get onto that in-depth industry knowledge that you employ as part of your sort of ideation phase of your process. Um, that seems key and, and certainly a differentiation from other players in this space. Um, And given that we are kind of into your process now, um, we've talked about the characteristics of themes or um, emerging or nascent asset classes and those that are consistent among those themes. But are there characteristics that are consistent among stocks? Uh, And certainly, I guess, the stocks that actually have staying power actually are capable of disrupting their industries versus the pretenders as I think they're called on your website
1: yeah um, so we, we like to call it buzzwords versus business models right um, <laughs> so that chasing buzzwords has become a thing and um, whether it be you know I remember the onset of sort of 5g you know everybody's buying what they thought were 5g. Related companies when 5G wasn't even online. You know, I think somebody's got a space ETF out there. Uh, you know, there's lots of fun stuff to invest in. But for us, it's it's not just about that, right? It's about a sound business model. And you'll see, you've seen it for decades, right, in the economy. The best horse doesn't always win. Right? The best team doesn't always win in sports. Sometimes it's about the the business model that is. Run by the best management team. So yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely signals. Management teams are one of them. You know, having confidence in the management team and the way they're deploying assets, the way they're deploying CapEx, the way they're approaching, you know, their business is a huge, huge factor. I think, you know, once again, if you look at sort of that free cash flow and how much cash flow is that business generating, uh, that shows you that they're protecting their margins. And it all comes back to the idea that you can have a heck of an idea or a heck of a technology, but it has to be wrapped up in a sound business model. Otherwise, it goes by the wayside. I've been in the in San Francisco for, I guess, 23-ish, 24 years, something like that now. So I was around to see the first .com and what happened to it in the end, right? And, and the understanding that there were some wildly new technologies. Some were really good. Some were pretty mundane, but the ones that were not wrapped up in a sound business model all suffered the same fate. And so that that goes back to my you know I, of course I'm I'm being sarcastic when I say things like this. But again, stand in the middle of an intersection, you're disrupting traffic. Are you making any money on it? No. Uh, is it a business model? No. So buzzwords are great. Uh, I think we went you know, disruptive, thematic, work from home. I mean, we had, we had an ample number of buzzwords in the last couple of years, you know, as, as the world sort of went through this, this phase. But, you know, understanding what companies and technologies or products are solving a pain point in the marketplace is going to be uh, rather important. And identifying secular growth companies, identifying companies that have a chance to make it. And so if you take that traffic analogy, would you rather own the company that's just standing in the middle of the intersection disrupting traffic? Or would you rather own the company that's solving that problem and making traffic run more smoothly? And so, you know, both can be disruptive, right? Both can be game-changing. Uh, so when you look at, you know, let's take, for example, the you know, the cybersecurity uh, issue, which is obviously cybersecurity, and as I already mentioned, it's going to be a massive, massive segment moving forward. But then you look at how they utilize AI, right? And if you take two companies, uh, one CrowdStrike and one Zscaler, right, they both utilize AI. They utilize it in different ways. Right? One's on the on the perimeter and one's at the core. And so which one's better? I don't know. I mean, you know, the reality is that it, it'll come down to the efficacy numbers, I suppose. But the reality is maybe they work in conjunction with each other eventually. Nonetheless, there are two companies that on a relative basis held up fairly well through the storm. Because I think everybody's identified that cybersecurity is, A, it's going to be a staple. B, you've got two companies that do it really well, come at it from two different directions, but both utilize you know uh, AI and deep learning to do it. So it's an example of, of two different companies using progressive technology to accomplish a goal. And I think that, you know, when you look at, and I'm going to veer off into AI and deep learning here for a second, but because so much of, you know, the the onset of some of these asset classes has to do with in timing and environmental factors. I mean, AI has been around for since 1940, really, before that, I'm sure. But, you know, the code-breaking machines were technically... AI, right? I mean, they they were they were learning. You know, the ones that uh, in your backyard, you know, uh, you know, Alan Turing came up with. So, you know, the idea that AI is some sort of new concept is a little bit misguided. But what makes it so relevant now? Well, for the first time in human history, you have fairly robust open source algorithms. Then you have processing power that has never been this powerful and then you have data we've got some of the most efficient clean data and the ability to store that data that we've ever had so you put all three of those together and then all of a sudden the concept of ai and deep learning just takes off right the applications of it expand exponentially and so when you look at what's a nascent asset class, you look at a, a segment or a theme where that type of paradigm shift can occur, that's a great example of it. You know, it's not that the technology also just showed up. It's just that all the different things came together as a confluence of factors that made it more relevant than ever and gave it a catalyst. You know, you could say the same thing about, uh, you know, renewable energy infrastructure, right? I mean… Renewable energy has been a thing for decades, right? But why is it so important now? Well, because the whole world is realizing, you know, you have different extremes to us. Some want to rip the bandaid off, some don't. But the whole world is realizing that our future lies in one area. Now it's just a question of how long does it take to transition there and what does that transition look like? And so uh, renewable energy and renewable energy infrastructure, they're going to have tailwinds for decades so it's the same kind of concept, right? The idea of renewable energy has always been there. We've just never had the peripheral technology to truly harness it. Like solar panels have been on houses since I was a kid, and I'm not young, right? So, but we've never had the batteries to store that solar power, right? And repurpose it. So it's you know you've got to look around the you know around the edges of these what we call disruptive technologies now and say, well, wait a minute, the technology itself has been here forever, but now it's actually gained uh, enough collateral network around or enough collateral environmental uh, peripheral technology to really assert its ability to solve pain points. And so it's grasping onto those concepts and those trends. And then once you get there, you've got to decide who the top one or two or three names are in any particular segment. Because in tech especially, there's a winner-take-all you know, concept that has proven out over decades of investing. And that winner-take-all concept basically means, look, there can be only one in the end. Right? right? Only one of those companies is going to be a household name. And the other ones are either going to go away or they're going to get bought up. So when you identify who that lead horse is, you need to concentrate into that horse and ride it. And ride it for all that runway it has in front of it. And that's really where you create alpha.
0: We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. So why is it that B2B tech stocks are better equipped to survive the recession? Where does that resilience come from? Yeah.
1: So again, it depends on the, uh, it depends on the asset class, right? So if, if you're in our low vol equity income portfolio, right? You know, you're certainly looking at different things. You're looking at far more established businesses and you're concentrating more on those business models, right? Best management team, best free cash flow, most sustainable dividends, health. You're, you're doing a general bill of health of that company in that industry. When you're looking at, AI and deep learning, if you're in that portfolio, your variances are much wider, right? So you're looking at far less mature industries, far less mature companies, but focusing on some of the same things, meaning, you know, as I've mentioned before, customer adoption, you know, growth in contracts, growth in customers, uh, year over year velocity, in like that the uh, aspect of the company. You're, again, looking at management team. But by and large... You want to, in that instance, identify the top two or three names. And so if you're in something like AI and deep learning, you can be across a whole bunch of sectors. You can be in biotech and life sciences. Uh, you can be in you know, in data. You can be in cyber. There's a lot of places that are utilizing AI and deep learning as a competitive advantage right now. So it's your job to find the top two or three companies in that segment that have a chance. To be the winner. And you want to own all of them, right? So if you look at our AI and deep learning portfolio, which is probably the most concentrated of the bunch, it runs on average you know, 21, 22 names in the portfolio. So if you think about the concept I just gave you, the idea that you know, you're owning two or three names, maybe even four names in a sector that you know, we think has. Uh, the properties of entering a hyper growth cycle mm-hmm. then you're talking about really anywhere from six to seven different segments of the tech marketplace that this phenomenon is occurring uh, so you know we'll look at anybody that uses AI and deep learning as a competitive advantage and then we'll analyze their position in their industry and try and understand if that competitive advantage is defensible and certainly who their competitors are. If we really like a company and how they deploy the technology and they have you know, one or two close competitors, we'll own all three. And then we'll constantly monitor that to see who ends up taking the lead. Okay, so TrueMark's AI
0: and Deep Learning ETF holds 21 companies, as well as a 1.88% weighting in cash or other. We've discussed your investment process more generally, but talk to us about how you landed on these names to provide a pure play on the AI and deep learning theme.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, because in certain spaces, there's no way you can ensure it, right? And I'll tell you, if you look at the name of that fund, you know, the LRMZ, the one we're talking about now, it's tech, AI, and deep learning. The reason tech is in there is because if you think about it, in order to have the that in the name of the fund, if we're just an AI and deep learning fund, then those companies would have to generate, you know, well, 50, at least 50% right, of their revenue would have to come from that, that particular category. So who's really generating revenue off of AI and deep learning? I mean, they're using AI and deep learning, but like a, a pharmaceutical company generates revenue off the, the drug don't generate red- enough AI and deep learning, so you know there's a big old gray area in there, and we really we rely on ourselves to police that because we do believe in what we're doing. So we will have constant conversations when we identify new names in the investment universe and come to a consensus as to whether or not we feel like they utilize enough AI and deep learning to justify a spot in that portfolio. So really, what it becomes is that twenty one names right now. If we add a name, we remove a name. And so it makes that decision process uh, far more discerning. We're not going to just pile names out of the fund because we think they're good. We have to like it more than something in the fund. And you know, there are certain factors that can change that, right? If a, if a company really goes sideways and we'll get it out, out of the fund without a replacement ready. But if we really like a name, it has to make a case Against every other fund in the portfolio. And it has to win that argument against at least one of those names. And so it's one in, one out. Uh, so, you know, that I think really helps us keep to our discipline of identifying companies that we think are in the space, are pure plays that solve a pain point, as I've mentioned, in, in their sector and utilize a and deep learning as a competitive advantage. So, you know, that's just where it starts, but it, it has to make a strong case. Uh, because it has to literally physically kick another name out of the portfolio to get in. Are
0: you conscious of exposure to sub themes then within that overarching trend? Do you attempt to manage sub theme
1: exposure at all? Yeah, well, uh, yeah. I mean, as I mentioned, if you've got, um, you know, if you own 20 some odd names and, and your, your discipline is to only buy the names in that subsector, we'll call it, that have a chance of winning the category. Then you can't get more than two or three deep, right? If you get six or seven deep, then you're, you're definitely buying, you know, anchors that are going to drag down your performance. So I think, you know, with that, that sort of um, parameter in mind that allows us to be fairly diversified, but because again, it's, there's such a depth of market for AI and deep learning. You know, I think it surprises people sometimes when they see biotech in there and they, you know, they think, wow, well, that's that's interesting you know it's fairly cross discipline uh but the reality is if the pandemic taught us anything besides work from home it taught us that the future and the current landscape of drug discovery has changed forever you know that the ai and data uh, and processing power have truncated that timeline tremendously and so you know again it's If you you see a place where AI and deep learning is really taking root, it's that guardrail of, look, we can only own people that have a chance of winning this category, that, that have a chance to be the last company standing and become a household name. And if they don't, we can't own them. But to try and rationalize that there would be more than two or three or at most four of those names, that's a fairly strong indicator that
0: we're drifting from our mandate. Great, so naturally our listeners will be interested to hear your thoughts on the next big thing. Are there any themes you're particularly bullish on in the current
1: environment? Well, if you look at mega caps, if you look at other companies that are spending into this space, they don't, they don't stop spending, right? When you looked at Meta, right, in their earnings, for example, and the stock did not fare well through those earnings, and you sifted through the rubble, and you understood where they're spending most of their CapEx next year, it's in data. They talked about the idea they really have to beef up their data, uh, their data capacity, data centers. Same thing from Microsoft. There was strength in Microsoft uh, from that perspective was one of their strongest areas. So you know, again, when you when you see where the real drivers are and it's other businesses spending on certain technologies, when you see where those the budgets of those businesses allocate their resources. That's a strong indicator of where they think things are going. So, you know, any B two C company, for example, that is reliant on consumer-driven growth, they in turn need to build infrastructure to handle that consumer business. Uh, so it's that those B two B companies that are sort of uh, behind the scenes right now that are driving all of that. And I think that, um, you know, again, when you see softness in the, in the B2C, and let's not kid ourselves, right? Consumers, if rates stay this high, they run out of free cash, okay? And a lot of people had surpluses coming out of the pandemic, and they're spending them. And eventually they run out, and eventually they tighten the belts, and eventually they cut out certain things that are not, you know, necessities. So there can be softness in B2C. And not to mention B2C is highly subject to trends. I mean, if trends changed any faster than they do now throughout the course of history, I'm not sure when it was. So, you know, there's a lot of that where, you know, this softness in the consumer is going to play out, but in the, you know, the pockets of those B2C areas that hold their own, right, that tend to make it through this, that tend to grow a bit, their entire infrastructure is predicated on, you know, technologies from other companies. You know, it's always funny to think about the idea that you know, AI and deep learning, there's really like four, five major algorithms out there. And so it's, they're available to everybody. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a matter of what you do with it, what, how good your data is, how you marry it to your processing power and what sort of changes you make to that, that open source, readily available trunk, which is the algorithm. So, you know, the idea that you know, companies will continue to need you know, B2C companies in particular, will continue to try and protect their margins. and then One of the biggest ways you protect your margins is you become more efficient, become more efficient with the use of technology. And so as that grows, as the the role that technology plays in helping those B2C companies protect their margins to become more efficient, to spend less, you know, that directly benefits the B2B companies. It directly benefits cloud applications. It uh, directly benefits... SaaS companies, which is software as a service. So you know, you'll see a robust demand for those products from a variety of places, including those very same B2C companies. So you know, where are they spending their money? That's the real question, right? Consumers spend their money in a certain place, but winds can change there and they can run out of money, especially in inflationary environments. But where are those B2C companies spending their money to protect their margins and to become more efficient and to reduce costs? It's with you know, the B2B cloud app providers or SaaS providers. And, and certainly in data, I think there are you know, a lot of, and, and as we've mentioned multiple times, they're all going to have cyber, right? So there are a lot of places that are far more defensible than simply B2C. How, if at all, then, is
0: valuation incorporated within your investment process? Are you looking for attractive entry or exit points, perhaps, or are fundamentals the key here? Uh,
1: The answer to both parts of that question is yes. (laughs) I mean, I certainly think that uh, there are opportunities to buy into very good companies right now that didn't exist eight months ago or 12 months ago. Valuations matter. You know, if we take on a position, we generally have a price at which we like to own it, and uh, we will work our position in over a period of time. Uh, because, as you know, things are quite volatile right now, so uh, we don't just you know jam it in at market price. So, yeah, valuations matter. You know, in 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 many cases over the past eight twelve months, we saw a situation where you know certain companies, certain sectors were unfairly beat up. By macro events, and I think anyone would argue that one of the the industries that was most beaten up was tech. Uh, Now, it certainly exposed some imposters, right? Because there were companies that had sort of taken on that that 1999 year 2000 sort of uh, laissez faire attitude where they just spend. And spend and spend and spend, and somebody will give them more money. They can just raise more money with the next round. Well, as that dries up, it forces those management teams to be a little more uh, respectful of a business model. And I think that's good. So, you know, it flushed out some of the, I think, some of the business models that probably weren't uh, quite sound. It allows us to, you know, look at companies we have believed in for quite some time. At a much different entry point and so yeah valuations definitely matter you know but at the same time without luck no investor really you know buys at the bottom it sells at the top right so we focus more on the quality of the investment and the name and the idea that we think it will have years of runway uh, and then we do the best we can with the valuation now so you know if something gets truly out of whack if the valuations are are that high i mean we're probably going to exit it right Rather than thinking about buying it, but you know, luckily that's the great thing about the stock market. There's a there's a new entrant uh, fairly often, so um, there's never any lack of ideas or places to look. And you know there there are lots of winners out there, lots of losers. It's just our our job to find more winners and losers.
0: Well, that's certainly true. A point that will no doubt resonate with our listeners, and a good point to close on. That just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on Opto Sessions, Michael. It's been a real pleasure.
1: No, absolutely. Thank you and love to join anytime. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone.
0: Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.
1: Co-fruition.